following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Ruth, chapter 4. There are times when uh, you guys don't get the privilege. I get to stand up here and get sung to. I've said this before, but it's a huge blessing and sometimes I wish I could just have a better voice to just praise God like, and just say, you are awesome. You know, we think about these words that Dan read and we see his sovereign hand working in Joseph's life to bring him into the depths all the way literally to prison, as far down as he could go. And then he raises him up to be able to work in the house of Pharaoh to literally save the entire nation and the entire nation of Israel as well. I mean, God is incredible. And uh, I wish I had a better voice to praise him with, but at least we can make a joyful noise, and uh, that's, uh, that's why we get to gather together, and thank you. Jordan, thanks for putting the service together today. It's a blessing to my heart, even just to think through these things. All right, so we are here, Ruth chapter 4. Um, we've been plowing through Ruth for the last three weeks, and uh, I always feel bad for anyone that if you're just jumping in right now, uh, you know, if, or if someone jumps in like halfway through something... They don't really know what's going on in the past, and hopefully not, you know, if, especially if they're jumping at the end. I'm sorry, today we're actually at the end. So it will be a little bit different. However, the good news is, the good news is, um, you're in luck. I'm going to take today to give us a good recap, to bring us back, to look at the whole, right from the beginning, all the way up through chapter 3, which we finished last week, and into chapter 4. And my goal today is to help us understand Ruth chapter 4. Of course, we'll cover it, we'll understand it, we'll see what it's saying both to us as readers and then to the larger picture of Scripture. Um, but also we want to kind of zoom out. We've been slowed down, and if I can use an analogy, we've kind of zoomed in on each chapter. We've gone to the next one. We zoom in and we watch it and we look at it closely. And the next one. Today we'll finish, we'll zoom in the last one, chapter 4, then we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit. And we're going to get a good, from a glance, from a distance, look at the book of Ruth and make sure that we can understand it better. Now, the nice thing for us today is that Ruth chapter 4, that's where it goes. Well, as you'll find, when we wrap up Ruth 4, it's going to give significance to the entire book different than we didn't ever understood before. So it kind of lends itself to that, which will be nice. We'll travel through Ruth 4, back up, take a look, and try to make sure we understand what the author is trying to do. We want to know who this book is actually about, of course. We want to know what the book is actually about. And if we can answer these questions, then we've not wasted our time here. So that's our task today. I'll begin by walking us through again the first three chapters quickly, and then we'll get into chapter four. The book of Ruth uh, is set in the time of Judges during a famine. Um, this is a bad thing, of course, because if famine means for God's people that there's some sort of judgment because there's a lack of covenant faithfulness on their part, this is a bad situation. And in this, Elimelech, a man from Bethlehem, literally house of bread, that is Bethlehem, is house of bread. He is leaving the house of bread to go to a country called Moab. Again, we talked about the origin story of Moab, a bad place to be going. Not somewhere where a follower of Yahweh, one who is covenantly faithful to him, should ever be away from the presence in the land of Moab. This is where he takes his family. In Moab, Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women. Not a good thing again for good Israelite boys. Then the two sons die. 
Now we are destitute and hopeless. We have one widow, and now we have three widows. They married Moabite women, then they died. So we have three widows here trying to figure out what to do. This is not a good situation. But Naomi, after hearing that there's a famine, that the famine has subsided back in the house of bread, back in Bethlehem, decides to return, decides to go back, declaring to all Bethlehem, if you remember this, when we go and she gets there, that she will no longer be called Naomi, which means pleasant or joyous. Rather, call me bitter. We kind of summed it up to, she said, I'm not joyful. I haven't had a good life. God took me from where I was when full, fullness, and God has brought me back empty. Call me a bitter old hag. That's who I really am. And leave me alone. This is where we see, come back. And by the way, she has a tag along with her. Someone who the book is actually named after, Ruth. Or if it goes back to be with her family, Ruth, for some reason, decides that she will be faithful to Naomi. And she will go back. And she says, your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, that's where I want to be buried there as well. And she shows this great amount of faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law. They start their life together, and Ruth takes the initiative. She goes out to the fields, and she scavenges. She's gleaning in the fields. And it just so happened, and as chance chanced it, she happened to lie in the field of a man named Boaz. Now, to Ruth, that didn't mean much, but we knew from the beginning of chapter 3 that he's actually important. Come to find out when she gets home that not only is he important and he has provided for them, and he says, stay longer. He's, he invites her to her table and says, eat with my workers. Make sure you get a drink from the, from the, uh, from the cooler. Make sure that you do this stuff and take more home to your, to your, uh, to your mother-in-law. That even tells his workers to pull grain out and throw it on the field so that she can pull more up. And at the end of the first day, remember this, she comes home with something along the lines of a Costco-sized bag of dog food full of grain that she brings home. It's a huge amount of food that she brings home. Naomi says, where were you? What in the world? Tell me the story. And she says, I was in the field of Boaz. Naomi says, no way. The God of, his, 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 God has continually showed kindness to the living and the dead because Boaz is special. Boaz is a redeemer. He qualifies to be a redeemer. He, he's a kinsman, one of our relatives of the clan of Elimelech. And he could actually be a redeemer for us. This is huge. However, uh, we see this happen and we watch it happen. And she says, stay in the fields with him. But nothing really happens after that yet. We're waiting. By the end of chapter 3, where is Naomi still and, and Ruth? Ruth is still living in the house of her mother-in-law. She hasn't progressed. They're not dating or anything like we kind of want to happen. Nothing of that is happening. So Naomi grows impatient. And in chapter 3, we see, sorry, at the end of chapter 2, let me go back and correct my statement. At the end of chapter 2, we find Ruth still living in the house of her mother-in-law. Chapter 3, Naomi is ready to hatch a plan. She says, here's the plan. I want you to go down to the threshing floor. I want you to go incognito. I want you to go and make yourself, make sure you wash up, put on new clothes, take off your widow's clothes, make sure you have, be, be presentable, wear perfume. I want you to go. Don't let anyone see you. And you're to go uncover Boaz's feet when he's asleep and lie down next to him. Now, from last week, again, 
please feel free to go back and read it or look and listen to our listen last week's sermon. This was scandalous. This is bad. It's a terrible position that Naomi put Ruth and Boaz into. But we, we can sigh a deep sigh of relief because both Ruth and Boaz act correctly. And Ruth, instead of just sitting by and seeing what Boaz will do, rather says, you need to be the redeemer. You need to come in here and spread your wing over me and redeem us. And what does Boaz say about the end of chapter 3? I will. I will do that. He's a man of integrity and will do this. But there's a catch. Boaz knows his clan pretty well. And there is another relative that's closer than him that would qualify for redeeming this land. And so it would be proper for that redeemer to do it before Boaz. And so Boaz will ask this man if he will redeem the property. But if he won't, Boaz says, as the Lord lives, I will do it. It's the end of chapter 3. We remember this. We close chapter 3 by watching Boaz load Ruth up like a pack mule with more grain for Naomi. Catch that for who? For Naomi. He even says, for your mother-in-law. Sends her home, and they're left to see what happens. To see if this other kinsman will perform the duty of a redeemer. And here we are, finally then, at chapter 4. So again, your Bible's in front of you. Chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. If you're not familiar, page 224. All right, let's get into it. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. So Boaz goes to the city gate. All right, this is a place that's kind of like a one-part marketplace, one-part civic center, one-part courthouse. This is where all the legal transactions would happen within the city of Bethlehem. This is where you're going to find the right witnesses and make sure that you actually have business go down. Again, it would be business stuff. It would be legal stuff. Any of these things would happen in this place. And it just so happened, again, notice the word behold. It's like, and look, who showed up? The Redeemer. This is amazing. Again, our, our author being very clever and showing us and reminding us that chance has nothing to do with it. But this guy shows up. Behold, the Redeemer that I was talking about. He's here. Notice that he calls him friend. Let me kind of, uh, why in the world wouldn't he use his name? He, he certainly knows his name, right? If he knows that there's someone closer to redeem than himself, he certainly knows his name. Why then would the text just write down friend here? And let me give you one step further. The, the literal meaning of this, this Hebrew word basically means Mr. So-and-so. Like that would be the idea, like very unidentifiable. Like there's no way that we know who this is. And it really kind of downplays at all that he is of importance at all. They wouldn't even give him their name. That's, that's, a, that's a flag. We should see that. Of course, Boaz knew his name. They called him Mr. So-and-so. Boaz calls some elders of the city together to ensure that this would be a legal transaction. It's got to be within witnesses, right? So he calls them together so they'd have a bona fide group of witnesses, and he begins to speak. Verse 3, look back again. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, belonged, notice, belonged to our relative Elimelech. He's dead now. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
by it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. No. This is not what we wanted. We did not want this guy to come in and swoop in. He's not even part of the story to come in and do this. We're waiting. We're like, we want Boaz and Ruth to like go out in the sunset, like holding hands on horses or something weird like that. Maybe donkeys, I don't know. But that's, we didn't want this to happen. Let's continue to read. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order so that you might or to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Here, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Oh, Boaz, <laughs> you sneaky fellow, you. <laughs> We're all worried about the sunset thing not happening, but this is something else he's going to throw in for us here. So he knows, he, uh, he, he left certain information out at the beginning, right? Just be very attractive and say, oh, I'd love to do this. Boaz says this. Look at the conversation. Boaz, conversation one, says this. I thought I'd tell you about the parcel of land that you can redeem. It currently belongs to a widow. The redeemer responds, wow, that sounds great. I'll redeem it. What an investment. You got to think about, think about this for a minute. What an investment for me. It's an older widow with no children. This is great. That means that no one, she most likely can't get pregnant again, so they're not worried about having children with her, and she has no one to pass the property to. Do you know what that means? I bought this back, and it now becomes mine. It doesn't go back to that, because there's no one to redeem it for. There's no one to give it back to in the family line. And he says, and yet, again, he's doing it for that family line, so it could be in that name, but it will vastly help him. He says, I can do that. I can be the obedient, dutiful hero of a, of a redeemer for Naomi. No problem. I can do that. It's a win-win. Yes, I definitely will redeem it. Then conversation two, Boaz comes in, right? Boaz says, great. The moment you buy it, you'll also get Ruth, the Moabite. Notice that he uses that word, the Moabite. We've talked about that's a pejorative. Like we, we don't, it's not really a nice thing to say about someone. He even uses it. He's being clever on purpose. He's doing something on purpose. By the way, if you haven't caught it, Boaz does want to marry Ruth. Now, from this we see, he says, he says you know, you're going to get Ruth Moabite, who is the widow of a dead guy, and in order to have children, that's what your purpose is, for that dead guy, and then the land won't even be yours anymore. Sorry. That's, that's the whole idea here. It will be passed on to perpetuate his name. Actually, the first guy won't even be in your name. He'll be in his name. So that's, that's what you'll get with this deal. Okay, we got a deal breaker here. Uh, uh, I don't know if I can handle all that. I think I'm going to back up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's to us, we're thinking, what a jerk. Like, couldn't he just, like, have done the right thing? Or, but you got to give him a little slack for a minute, okay? Let's talk about this. He's got, most likely, he's probably got his own family. He probably has his own wife and children. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a minute, okay? If he has those things, he, if he's going to spend this money on this, like we just said... He is going to lose most of it, if not all of it. And if not, actually what's going to happen is it's going to go to perpetuate someone else completely. 
And that actually is the whole idea of a redeemer, that they would sacrificially give back and buy back for that person at a personal loss. But he says, it'll impair my own inheritance. I mean, it may not even leave enough for my own children. It's going to hurt me financially to do this. And it may just take more time for me than I need to. Plus, by the way, think about this. Who is the one that came to him to talk about this? Another potential redeemer. So it's not like she's going to be stuck. Boaz could do it. Like, no, I, I really need to back out of this. Sorry, I'm not going to be the redeemer. You go ahead and do it. Um, you know, blessings upon you. You're going to do great. So it really just makes more sense, right? Even looking at it from a worldly wise perspective, logical, it makes more sense for him to back out and for Boaz to step in. There's a lot of other stuff on the side, but it makes sense, right? We, we can give him that. But let me draw your attention back to chapter one. He is like someone else. A girl who has a name, Orpah. Remember Orpah? She's faced with the same decision to stay with her mother-in-law. No, not the same decision as Boaz and, and, and this redeemer. She has a, cho- a choice whether or not to follow back Naomi to Bethlehem, God's house of bread. And she chooses the logical, worldly wise thing to do. She says, I will go back to my own kindred, my own family, and to go back to get married. She's still young. She can still do all these things. It makes perfect sense for her to go back and to be a part of her family, in her country, where she knows people, instead of being another liability to Ruth and, and Naomi, really. So now, remember that, but this is even a step further than Orpah, because we know Orpah's name. <laughs> we don't even know this guy's name. And as he decides to take off this responsibility and give it over to Boaz, we watch him walk away, and we walk, watch him, just like Orpah, walk right out of the book of Ruth. Gone. Done. The author is clearly presenting Orpah and Ruth and each of them to teach us something. But now he's also really showing us that there's something between Boaz and the Redeemer as well. We're supposed to compare the two. Does that make sense? We're supposed to look at Orpah and Ruth and see a difference and see where it leads. And now we're supposed to see Boaz and the Redeemer and see there's a comparison and the one walks away. And then Boaz decides this and what's it going to lead to? Don't make a mistake. Catch that. That's on purpose. We should be looking to Ruth, and we should be looking to Boaz and their counterparts and how God deals with both of them. It's very significant for us. So they are, don't get me wrong, this is not the point overall of the book, but they are our example. Don't miss that. They are set up as people who have done the right thing, who have loved God and faithfully done the right thing. So after Mr. So-and-so decides to walk away from the deal, he walks right out of the book. Like I said, they make an agreement, as we're going to read in a little bit here. And after that, we don't see or hear from him ever again in all of Scripture, let alone the book of Ruth. Done. Verse 7, take a look. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off the sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, showing this is going to be a legal transaction. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The legal transaction terms have been stated. He's put it out there now for all. Not only he's been talking this whole time to, if you you look back, he's been talking this whole time to this other redeemer. Now he literally turns to the rest of the group to address them, to say, this is what I am doing. And in your presence, I want you to make sure this is, everyone knows that you hold me to this. I have now bought this and all that goes with it. That is what I am saying I do today. As the redeemer, the other guy, takes off the sandal and literally passes his obligation, his right of redemption to Boaz. Now Boaz is saying, I accept that sandal or that, that obligation and I will redeem it. So we're excited because we know now that it's legal, it's happening, there's stuff actually going on. This is going to lead then somehow to he and Ruth getting together. This means that Naomi is saved. This means that all that we found out about who Boaz was in chapter 2 and chapter 3 now will apply as long as they live because they will have a union now. This is exciting. And there is a response in chapter 11 from this crowd. I'm sorry, verse 11. Take a look. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, to whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We have this really incredible blessing that the townspeople or those that were like probably the elders and people that were surrounding this area, the witnesses, are giving back now to Boaz and Ruth. It's beautiful. And it's kind of like they're, they're, they're saying it as a, as a blessing, but it's really almost like a prayer that God would do these things for them. So they pray that the Lord would make Ruth abundantly fertile, like Rachel and Leah. What children did Rachel and Leah have? Anyone know? How about the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and built up the house of Israel? Were they renowned? I think so. Did they have many men, chi- children that they, that they were able to birth? Yeah, that's important because they're saying, may, they, may she be like Rachel and Leah and have distinguished and many sons that will have importance in Bethlehem. Now, Will she have these distinguished children? Maybe. We'll have to see. They pray for renown throughout Bethlehem for Boaz, by the way. Will he have it? Maybe. We'll see. And then they pray that this, his house, this is really interesting, would be like Perez. Where did that come from? Who was born to Tamar and Judah. It's a little weird. Perez, were we talking about this before? Well, the mention of Tamar and and, and who is the mother of Perez, and Judah is extremely important here. It's a negative thought for us, right? We know what happened when Tamar tricks Judah and goes in and disguises herself as a prostitute and thereby creating an opportunity for Perez's father to actually be his grandfather and his mother. That's what happens in this story. Go back and read it if you want to. This is not a good thing for us to look at. Rather, though, 
there's a little bit different of a take on it this time. We think of it, we think of it negative, which is warranted, right? But you have to remember that the outcome of this scenario was that children were born to Judah, Perez, and Ur. One which later became, by the way, Perez, the leading house of Judah. That's significant. And because of her actions, she gained herself fame as the founding mother. Tamar did it right. And somehow, Judah even says to her, you have been more righteous than I have been, because he never gave his son Sheila to her, which he should have. We know this, and we look at it and we say, huh, Ruth has been compared to Tamar. And they pray now, this group prays, that she may fully become and fulfill a similar grand destiny like Tamar did, who has now been written into the story of Israel. Who knows? Maybe she will. We have now come to the final scene in our story, the final solution, the resolution, the happily ever after, you will. Um, it's kind of like the part when in a movie, you, you kind of cry and kind of laugh a little because you're weird and nervous and you don't want to feel like you're crying all the time, but you're happy for these people and you're excited because of their good fortune. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 13, let's look. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Boaz and Ruth get married, right? And it just so happened that she got pregnant, right? No, look at the text. Look at verse 13. Who gave her conception? The Lord. All of a sudden, we've seen a turn, right? This author is closing this up and saying, no, 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 no. Let me make sure you understand this is not by happenstance. This didn't just happen. Behold, look, a baby came out. No, 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 no. The Lord is the one who gave the conception. This is somewhat miraculous because do you remember how long, how many years she was married to Malon? Ten years, no children. Ten years, they had, she had no children, nothing was happening. And now, we don't know how long it took, of course, but we see it's very important here that he tells us, and the Lord gave her conception. It was the Lord who opened Ruth's womb. But stop for a minute and see how the rest of this scene turns away now from Ruth and Boaz. And look who it turns to. We recognize what's going on here? Now we're starting to zoom in on a different person, Naomi, where we started. We see this group of women, by the way, who had earlier listened to Naomi's lament and her lament of her emptiness. Remember, she comes back to the city and they call her, is this Naomi? And she gives them, you know, she gives it to them hard and says, don't call me this, blah, 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 blah. I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm bitter. God has taken all these things from me. This group potentially of women who listened to her lament, now the tables are turned. Naomi is listening to this group of women most likely rejoice with her from emptiness to fullness. She's gone from being empty and bitter and nasty and saying, don't call me my name anymore, call me Mara. Now, these women are saying, look at who, what God has done for you. And they're praising Yahweh and blessing her. And she sits by and listens to this, how God has turned the whole picture around and literally taken her from emptiness to fullness. 
They bless the Lord who has given Naomi, Naomi a redeemer. They pray that he will be renowned. And not just in Bethlehem. Remember back in the city gate, Boaz was told that he'll be renowned in, in Ephrathah and in Bethlehem. Here, look what they say. They prayed that he'll be renowned not just in Bethlehem, but in all of Israel. That's broadening the scope, don't you think, just a bit? We're taking it from a town to all of Israel, and now we're adding some things in here like, well, that's, slow down, ladies. This is just like a, a kid was born. This is great. We should be happy about it, but renowned in all of Israel? Like, what a, wow, that's pretty grandiose. These women remind Naomi also that God will restore her life through the birth of this son, born to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, by the way, they, she puts this, it's, it's almost like a more commas and like saying, and she also did this and this, and she's also worth more to you, Naomi, than seven sons. Seven sons, by the way, is like the ideal Jewish or Israelite family. And she is saying in here, the ladies are saying, Ruth was the one who loved you, the one who faithfully followed you here. And she's just conjuring up all the other stuff. She's the one that went out to glean in the field. She's the one that secured your provisions physically and also your security. She is worth way more than seven sons. Look what she's done and, com- and connecting. And now she will birth the Redeemer by calling him to redeem this son who is now going to take over this spot. She has done this and, and born this child, a healthy, bouncing baby boy as her heritage. Verse 16, and by the way, let me get, before I say that, it's also, it's important to remember that these ladies are putting it back on God, that he is the one that has done this for her, that he gave Ruth to her. He is the one that did not leave Naomi bitter and empty. He is the one who gave her security and provisions. Through Ruth, sure, but God is the one that did it. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the, woman, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Naomi becomes the boy's nanny, as it were. The word nurse there is not to be like a wet nurse or anything like that. It's his nanny. She is a proud grandmother. She will care for this boy. All that comes with, I'm sure there's a few in here who remember the first time your parents either saw you or one of your siblings have the first baby in the family, and they beam bright as the sun. That's what we're seeing here. She can't believe this is all happening and that God has blessed her with this beautiful baby boy. And as a reader, we're winding down, right? We're seeing the conclusion of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, their story. And God is one. Um, his people are saved. He has proven his hesed to Naomi. And as readers, we kind of predict a few closing comments and the story will be over. But then we read this. Look at the end of verse 16, going to 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait, 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 wait. Can you say the last part again? Yeah. Um, the ladies came. No, 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 the very last part. Yeah. Uh, the father, the part about the father being the father of this guy and the father of God guy, and we're talking about the David. You mean like the King David? Is that who you're talking about? Yeah, like the one who like, was a shepherd and played music and wrote psalms and killed Goliath and the thing with Bathsheba and he's the father of Solomon and all these things? Yeah, that's what the text says. That's who it is. Oh my goodness. Our entire world has just changed in this book. We're coming to a close, right? We're coming down, we're coming down. 
And finally, this baby is born. His name is Obed. Obed happens to be the father of Jesse, who happens to be the father of David. What? No way! Like, like all of a sudden, like, this story almost becomes insignificant because you know what that means. All this over here, that he is the son, that he is the, Boaz is the great-grandfather, Obed is the grandfather of King David. Now, to you and me, it's made to seem really cool, but this is not just really cool. It's not just like a juicy little fact that we need to know in trivia for, like, if we ever get on Jeopardy and there just happens to be a Bible character's category. That is not the significance here. Don't just, like, tuck this away. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. No, this is huge. We are now talking about the lineage of King David, who is the one who was promised from old, who is the one that we know God will work through to set up the Davidic kingship. We also know more, by the way. Hold on that second for a minute, though. This little story has much greater significance than any normal reader would have ever guessed up to this point. Again, we should be winding down, right? We should be thinking, oh, it's, this, is, this is great. We're excited. We're kind of, again, we're kind of weeping, but excited and kind of laughing for our characters. And like in the last closing minutes of the movie, all the significance is blown up. And we see that it's going somewhere. This whole time, we thought it was just about these characters. You know, this character, Naomi, we see her, and we see her change and grow and bottom out, and then God has brought her back, and we see Ruth and Boaz and what they're doing, and we see the, the go from famine to fullness in, in, in Bethlehem, and we're seeing this go to the King David now. What, what's going on? This is huge. This is much larger than what we thought that it was in, uh, initially. The story itself is beautiful and intriguing, but in this one short phrase, the book has changed courses altogether. It is at this moment that our minds get blown, and it, we're thinking, whoa, this is way bigger again. If you can't tell, I'm trying to get this, help us understand that this is much bigger than just saying King David. It's not just okay to just think it's a cool tidbit. This means that God was working the whole time with a family on the brink of extinction, right? And it just so happens along the way that he brings into this family Ruth, the Moabite, who just so happens to decide that she'll follow Naomi all the way back to Bethlehem, who just so happens to end up in the field of a redeemer, Boaz, who just so happens to find the guy that she wanted to in the, in the city gate. He foils that plan, and now he's going to marry her and actually provide this for him. It's much larger than this. This little story about a family on the brink of extinction now producing a male heir who would one day be the ancestor of King David. Ruth is really important. Boaz is really important. And if I have to prove it to you, let's keep going here. There's actually five more verses in this text of Ruth. Go ahead and look at them or, or watch this fine. Just listen. These are not just closing remarks either. Here we go. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If you watch my fingers, it's on purpose. I was counting on purpose. And I'll talk about it in a minute. Genealogies may appear boring to us. They may be something that we think are technical and, you know, uh, dry and important for people who really like Ancestry.com, you know, that's fine. 
like genealogies are like, why would anyone read this or put it in a narrative? But genealogies are used throughout the world um, for very specific purposes, and it's no different here. This is on purpose, and it's telling us something. In this type of genealogy, again, I use my fingers to count, the most important people are the 10th person, that's what we're leading to, and the 7th person. Go ahead, you can look back at your Bibles to see who's 10th and 7th, that's fine. In this one, but I'll tell you too, person 10, King David. Everyone knows him, they're looking for him, they're, it's, like, it's like an anchor. King David, that's the whole big shock to us, right? But now the author's going to bring this genealogy and show us who number 7 is as well. Guess who it is? Boaz. Number seven, after reading the book of Ruth and knowing this, we're thinking, shouldn't we have someone else in this lineage? Like the whole idea about the Redeemer, are we we missing someone? How about the true father of who Obed was born for, Malon, or at least the clan of Elimelech somehow, right? I mean, that's why it's so important to have a Redeemer. But the author isn't concerned about the legal records. Yes, Obed's legal father would have been Malon. But that's not at all what the writer of Scripture is concerned with. He's far more concerned with the real issue at hand, his physical father, the father Boaz. By the way, the father who is the one who showed God-like hesed or covenant love to these women. This genealogy is drawing our attention to the vital role the characters in the book of Ruth have played in God's bringing about his servant David as Israel's king. Everyone knows how important the king of Israel is. No matter how much the reader knows or not doesn't know, they know that David, King David, is pretty important. Besides maybe Moses, David is probably the most important character in the whole whole Testament. And now we find out that this entire story resulted in the birth of King David's grandfather. And that's really how the book of Ruth ends, with us marveling. And it sees it leads us up to the big question of what in the world is the purpose then of Ruth? Now we have to go back and look at all the stuff that we just went through, and now we have to funnel it through that the author was getting ready to drop on us the bomb on that, that this was about leading up to the lineage of David, King David. Again, perhaps one of the most perhaps the most important character of all the Old Testament. Everyone knows him again. And now we know about the David thing, we really need to look at it again and ask what the story's about. We clearly see that the central character is Naomi, right? We saw at the beginning, we saw her lose all the men in her life. Then she goes back, she's bitter, she grows, she falls, she gets better, she plots, she schemes, God still works it out for her, and now she's full again. She's certainly the central protagonist, as it were, literarily, if we just didn't know anything up until the end of this book about this genealogy, we would see this. How about Ruth and Boaz? I mean, we see them over and over again. We see their, their covenant faithfulness, both to one another, to God himself, and obedience and duty and loving and fulfilling the law, the actual spirit of the law. We see Ruth being what Israel is actually supposed to be, loving to the foreigner. This is the foreigner loving them sacrificially, going back and doing this thing. Maybe it's about her. Um, Ruth was the most, let me just, let me throw one more thing out. I think this is the point. All those characters are incredible. They are not the central character of this book, however. All that the author has been doing this whole time has leading us to understand that God works both through obedience 
disobedience. He calls who he wills. He works in their situations. He rewards disobedience and covenant faithfulness. But behind the whole thing, who is this all about? God. He is the main character in this. He is the one who is doing this. He is the one that has taken this family from the brink of extinction and not only giving them redemption, but has produced the Davidic kingship from it. God is the one here. This book is about God. We are to look... Again, so why... The question then is, like, so why is it called Ruth and why isn't the book called Yahweh? Well, Ruth certainly is the most unlikely piece in the whole story. If, he, if she hadn't come back, we wouldn't have David, as it were, in a sense. Just, just go with me for a minute. God uses her as a foreigner to show faithful, sacrificial love to Naomi and to bring about the birth of Obed, the grandfather of King David. We are to look to her and marvel at God's grace and his sovereignty, not at her character. We are certainly to say, wow, that's great character, but that's not the point. We're not to marvel that she was so righteous. We are to marvel that God used a Moabite woman to bring the Davidic line. It's incredible, and we should marvel. As the book closes and turns our gaze forward to a new history for Israel, leading us now to King David, we start to see just how important all that what was happening in this whole book, how important it all is for God's story and God's plan for Israel. And he is using what he always does, normal people, the weak things of the world, to confound the wise. Anyone heard anything like that before? Yeah. The book, this book and this genealogy at the end demonstrates that in the dark days, remember where it started in the days of the judges? In these dark times, times where there was no one ruling, that the judges, a chosen line was preserved. The chosen line of David was preserved not by heroic exploits, not by like clever maneuvering of judges or some sort of powerful family. In fact, it's just the opposite. Rather, it's God's good hand rewarding faithful people with fullness beyond their imagination and him bringing about what he had planned from the beginning to work through. It's about God. It's about how he works. Don't, please don't miss it. It's not about our characters here. They're certainly a part, but God is using them to bring himself ultimate glory. It reaches all the way to the establishment of the Davidic monarchy and I know some of you are thinking this. It reaches even farther than that. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read this all, lest you be bored, but I want to make sure I show you a few things. It does not just end with David. It goes a step further. Verse 1 through 6, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now, skip down to verse 15. There's a lot of other good stuff in there. Just for time's sake, let me jump to 15. And Iliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, ringing a bell here, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is not just about God's hesed to Ruth and Naomi, giving them food and security. This is not even just about God's hesed to the nation of Israel, preserving David's line. We just learned that today, right? This is about something much larger. This is about God's hesed to all the nations through Jesus Christ. This goes back to fulfill what he told Abraham in chapter 12, Genesis 12, 3, that be, by you all nations will be blessed. This is where he's going with this, that Jesus Christ would die for our sins so that we might have fellowship finally so that we could be bought back, as it were, to the Father, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could finally have the sin, the curse, be, be, be destroyed because of what Jesus Christ did. That's where we're leading to. The book of Ruth is not just about Ruth or the people involved. It's not even just about David. It's about him loving the world, literally, with his covenant hesed love and his people with hesed love and calling them to himself in Jesus Christ. So we see over and over again God's love. We know that it's about God's hesed, but now we realize it's not just about that in the story. It's about God's hesed for the entire world and those that he will call to himself and those that he will call to be his own people. That is what the book of Ruth is all about. We don't want to miss it. So what, right? There's a lot for you to think about. There's a lot for us to mull over. Remember, though, each piece of this story, this is not God's plan, again, to work through clever people only or those who are powerful or who had military exploits or judged well or, or were sneaky or did all these different things that the world makes sure that they really grab onto and say, that's how we got to get things done. Rather, it's God's hand working through disobedience and through obedience. And he shows us and calls us not to the former. He calls us to obedience and calls us to follow him. And we see his faithful love play out in these characters and how it has changed the world and how literally he used it to bring about the Messiah. We ought to marvel and recognize that we are called to the same things. Nothing is different. We may not have the Messiah in our lineage. That's not the point. God is at work in our lives. Do not give up hope. You are not insignificant to him. You are being used. So obey and love him and follow after him and be used that way so that you might promote his kingdom. That's what we want. All glory be to Christ. Not to us, but to his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the book of Ruth, just one of many books that have pushed us to see who you are. We love you and ask that you would help us to obey and see you for who you are, respond and worship and marvel. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.